following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast, where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Die Buddies podcast. Uh, today, we have a very special guest and super excited for this conversation. Uh, with us today, we have John Roth, who is a professional pilot, and he's been paving the way to have more type 1 diabetics um, have access to this profession of aviation. And I think it'll be very clear as you hear throughout this conversation, the passion in his voice to make change and, and to really say, even if you're diabetic, that doesn't mean that you have to be limited on what you can do. Uh, so welcome, uh, John, to the podcast. Hi, guys. Uh, again, very excited to be uh, talking with you and look forward to having a good conversation about things. Yeah, absolutely. Us too. Uh, let's uh, kind of just do like a little bit of introduction of John, you know, uh, who you are and kind of say in your own stuff in your own story and maybe uh like your diagnosis story to start off with and so people can kind of get acclimated to um what's going on absolutely um yeah so to kind of get things started uh currently um i'm uh, working with a uh, regional airline um as a, a flight instructor basically teaching uh, airline pilots um and uh, currently working on the last portions of getting uh, my medical certification back for my uh, commercial airline career uh, that was abruptly cut short or put on pause, as I like to say now, um, due to a, a diagnosis of uh, type 1 diabetes when I was uh, 37 years old, so um, pretty late in life, um, mm -hmm. and uh, just kind of the uh, process to get there, um, you know, I guess can be part of the portion of the show. Uh, and then also some of the things that, uh, you know, many others, including myself, I've been working on over the last few years uh, to kind of uh, break down some of those barriers for um, insulin dependent uh, diabetics, both type one and type two, um, to either be able to continue uh, or resume or begin a career in uh, commercial aviation and um, some of the things that um, have led into that. So, um, as I said before, I was, you know, diagnosed and you know, depending on your point of view, you know, some might, uh, who have had type one probably from a very young age, you know, some might say, well, I'm kind of glad I never knew the difference, uh, because then it, it alleviates some of that. Um, I guess, um, I don't know, maybe re regret or, you know, feeling of missing out. Um, but, uh, on my end, you know, I, uh, I was fortunate. I feel like I was fortunate to live a good chunk of my life. Um, without type one and the perspective that I feel that gives me is uh, that I'm very uh, thankful for um, basically that life both before and the perspective that the type one diagnosis has, has given me 
both on, you know, the way I want to continue living my life and, uh, you know, a, a new, I guess, uh, interest and focus on health. And then um, also um, basically just trying to help others that have uh, found themselves in a similar situation. Wow. Uh, so that's, that's a crazy, how did you find out you were diabetic at the age of 37? Yeah. Like you had this literally entire life. How what, did you get going go DKA? Was it just a general checkup? What, what was that scenario at that moment in your life? Yeah. So, um, it was uh, definitely a progression and it's one of those deals where I think a lot of people who were diagnosed later on, or even parents maybe that have kids that were diagnosed, you know, looking back and now knowing the symptoms and the things to look for, um, it was quite obvious that that's where things were going. But at the time when you're kind of amongst it and you're not aware of the fact that, you know, type one can, you know, come on so late in life, you just mm -hmm. don't think to, to look for it. So, you know, the, the items or the, I guess, time frame that led up to my diagnosis was somewhere in early um, October of 2014, um, I noticed uh, that I started to have, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, blurred vision, um, not, not so much blurred, but just felt like my contacts, I do wear contacts, like my prescription was going, you know, was changing. And mm -hmm. at first I thought that was a little weird because I haven't had any change in my vision uh, for until that point, almost 15 years. I mean, I had the same prescription, same everything, no issues. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went into um, uh, an optometrist and, you know, they just, you know, I had no history of diabetes, of course. And, um, you know, this is just those who are just listening to the audio, you know, I've kind of uh, always put a focus on um, athletics and trying to stay fit, trying to stay healthy. And so, you know, the old phrase probably applied you don't look diabetic, which is, you know, we all know is not, um, accurate, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, so they didn't, I, I just don't think they, they looked for it. And so, you know, they gave me a different prescription and, you know, it seemed to help, but then other days it wouldn't help as much. And I kind of noticed at work at the time I, I was a, uh, an airline pilot and still with the same company, but, just seeing things at a great distance, you know, which we have to do as pilots, you know, runways out, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles away, uh, other aircraft, you know, seeing numbers on the sides of aircraft and taxiways every once in a while, this would be a little blurry. And I just was like, well, this, this, you know, this isn't right. Something's wrong with my prescription. You know, I come to find out later that that was probably a byproduct of, you know, significantly ver uh, variable blood glucose values causing the inflammation in the eye and the retina. Um, and those capillaries in there. Um, mm. But that was kind of the very earliest sign, I think. Uh, and then it kind of progressed um, the, later on in November timeframe into probably the first of December. Uh, st I started to lose, well, lose weight. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it was kind of like my, the way my wife tells the story is like each time I'd come home from a trip, like a three or four day trip, you know, she'd kind of wonder if I was eating enough or, you know, it was, uh, you know, taking care of myself properly on the road, uh, because she's like, it was noticeable, even within a four day trip, I'd come home and I would look thinner. Um, wow. and, um, you know, I wasn't noticing it. I was still trying to get workouts in. I was still trying to remain active, which mm -hmm. probably was, you know, responsible for me, um, being able to sustain as long as I did, because I was probably cutting down, you know, some of the glucose that was going on there and keeping me out of ketoacidosis. But, um, 
And then, uh, you know, I started to then get, you know, the thirst, as everybody says, you know, I started to get really, really thirsty all the time. And, um, you know, was having trouble making it through an hour and a half, two hour long flight without having to go back and hit the lab on the airplane, um, which was abnormal for me. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it just kind of progressed to the point where in January, so the first week in January, I got back from a trip and um, it was a three day trip. Had a couple of days off and I was supposed to go back out on another three day trip. And I was, you know, down in the kitchen, you know, making, you know, this is the funny part, some waffles with blueberries on it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just feeling like death warmed over. And I just was, I told my wife, she had just come back from a night shift. She was, uh, is a veterinarian, but I uh, was doing a night shift. And I just told her, I said, I'm going to have to call in, you know, sick. I go, I, I can't, I can't, I'm not fit for duty, which is a, another term in aviation that you have to do a self-assessment to say, am I fit to duty to take responsibility of this aircraft and these people on the aircraft? And mm. I take that very, very seriously. And I just said, you know, no, I, I cannot report to work like this. It's not like, you know, going into, uh, you know, a position where, you know, if you mess up at work, you just go back and redo the paperwork. This is, you know, a little bit higher stake. So yeah. she said, well, you know, you're not only uh, calling out for work, we're going to the emergency room because at that point she, you know, she just said, you know, I had enough. And at that point, um, I sit where I'm at weight wise, about 175 pounds. Um, and at that time I had lost 27 pounds. So I was just, you know, below like 150. So I lost uh -huh. a lot of weight. Um, wow. Yeah. So we went down to the ER and uh, kind of gave them my symptoms and they, you know, did a finger stick as the story goes and it read high, of course. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then they uh, walked me back, you know, um, kind of part of the waters, as I like to say, in the um, emergency room, which is never good. Um, you know, put me back in a, in a bed and, you know, I uh, came to find out later on my medical record that when they actually measured the blood glucose at that time, um, it was, uh, 897. Uh, wow. So That's so high. <laughs> oh my God. 890. You're so close to 900. You could have got that. <laughs> I know, I know, I just by that much. You know. <laughs> um, so yeah. And, uh, of course being a pilot and knowing that <clears throat> there's two components of, uh, particular, well, airline, um, uh, pilot certificates in general, depending on what level you hold, uh, you have to have different, uh, categories of medical classification one through three. And as an airline pilot, you have to hold first class medical. And so something that's always in the back of your brain as an airline pilot or a pilot in general is your fitness for duty and your ability to hold that medical certificate. Um, so while I'm sitting there, you know, uh, in the ICU waiting to get transferred wherever, they haven't decided what to do with me yet. You know, of course, I'm, you know, on my iPad looking up, you know, this, you know, potential condition as it pertains mm -hmm. to my medical. And, you know, you pull it right up you know, on the FAA website under their AeroMed uh, departments. And it just says insulin treated diabetes is a disqualifying event for all first, second, and partially third class medical certificates. Wow. At wow. which point you're kind of sitting there and, you know, I saw, you know, to that point would have been a 20 year trajectory. Just, you know, take a, you know, take a hard landing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, to use some aviation stuff in there, but um, <laughs> yeah. So then you're just kind of faced with what next? Wow. At that moment, were you, were you just trying to process what was going on or did you think that was it? Or, you know, it's one thing to be diagnosed and think, wow, my life is going to change. Like, I don't know what this means yet, 
but you know, after so many years, you said 20 years you, you were training essentially and you both training and you were uh, active yeah. pilot. Yeah, I, I got no. my uh, first level of pilot certificates uh, when I was 17 years old. So oh. I've been up to that point. I've been flying yeah, privately and then commercially uh, for, for 20 years. So, yeah. So was it so at that point, were you more concerned? How can I get this back? Or were you more concerned? What does this mean for my health? I mean, like, I mean, this situation kind of goes hand in hand, you know, but yeah. uh, I, I feel like most people don't have to think about that at their diagnosis. I feel like that was like your first thought, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely. Um, you know, as, as you said, it, there really was a kind of a duality to it, which is, you know, first and foremost, not only how is it going to affect me, but how is this going to affect my family, you know, my wife, hmm. uh, Sarah, um, and you know, how am I going to you know, continue to, you know, provide, um, you know, from a career standpoint. Um, and then, you know, with that career, something that I, you know, still care a great deal about. And, um, you know, that kind of rolls into when you see that finite print, you know, as a disqualifying event, you know, then your brain kind of, you know, I think, you know, depending on the person you have two ways of looking at that. Um, and I've, you know, talked about this on one other interview where, you know, you have that mental, capacity to say, is this something that's going to basically crush you and allow you to take that tangent and allow it to stop you? Or can you take the mental choice of saying, okay, this is a massive obstacle. It potentially is going to be a long and difficult road and or flight. <laughs> um, how, how can I overcome this? Is it possible? Is it reasonable? And, you know, then how do I go about um, pursuing that, uh, goal of um, overcoming this and you know I had a good amount of time to think about it in the hospital you know I was in the ICU for a night and you know was you know sent my wife you know asked her to go home I didn't send it that sounds bad but I asked her to go home because she had been off in excess of 24 hours at that point because she mm -hmm. came off a night shift um, and had some time to think about it and you know I just said you know this is you know, I'm, you know, when I get out of the hospital and I get a handle on this, you know, I'm going to start digging and find out if this really is something that I can, uh, you know, advocate and overcome, or is it something that, you know, if I talk to the right people that feel that the, this is not something that um, will change, you know, is there a different capacity that I could uh, still stay in the aviation industry or, you know, look for other, I guess, ways to continue with the, uh, the um, uh, you know, the career that I, you know, spent so long trying to attain. Um, so, yeah, you know, I just had to, you know, utilize that from a professional standpoint. Um, and then, you know, I'm also a big proponent and, you know, everyone has their down times and everyone has their times when they think, oh, you know, stuff's really mounting, stuff's really piling up and it's hard to stay positive. But, um, you know, you just, you, you got to turn to what you do have. You know, and at that point, you know, I said, wow, you know, I have, you know, a, a loving, caring wife that, you know, cared enough to say we need to go to the hospital. Um, you know, I had you know, good family structure around me. You know, I had or have, you know, a lot of other things outside of my career that I also enjoy. And as I started to read into it, you know, it, it was one of those things where I said, this is going to be a significant, um, you know, learning curve to deal with this and learn how to do or manage this disease safely. 
but I also thought, well, even if I can't fly again at a commercial level, uh, I can still go mountain bike. I can still go backpacking. I can still enjoy the outdoors. I can still be active. You know, I can still go lift weights. I can still spend time with my family. So, you know, I had, it's the old 80, 20 rule. I had 20% that was in jeopardy of losing. And I had 80% that was still there that was still really good and worth, you know, uh, having positivity for, and, you know, I, that, that's the way I, you know, opted to look for it, look at it rather. Wow. Yeah. I love that mindset. You only me brought up a couple different mindsets that you were kind of going through, but, mm -hmm. um, like looking at an obstacle as an obstacle of something that you just need to figure out how to overcome that. But then also like what you just said there of, you know, I still have 80% of my life that I can, I can do. It's just that 20% that's still up in the air. Um, and so I think that's a great mindset to look at as far as like, you know, it's easy to focus on that 20% because yeah. it, it, it can seem like such a big part of your life. Cause you, like you said, you've done that for 20 years and, and I'm sure you have a lot of other skills that you can utilize to make a living and, and whatnot. But obviously you love um, aviation and that's what you want to do and pursue. Um, so it can be easy to focus on that and say, what was me? And, you know, this is going to be, you know, a disaster or, or hell or whatever. Um, so to be able to take a step back, look at your life and say, all right, I still have a great life. Um, but there's still, there's just going to be this obstacle that I got to get over. And, um, I think for a lot of diabetics, you know, type one diabetes is a big obstacle or a big thing that you have to navigate in your life. And so just looking at it objectively and saying, okay, this is tough, but these are the things I need to do to overcome this. Um, so the question I want to ask off of that is at the time that you're diagnosed, I know you said that um, there wasn't, or you automatically were disqualified for class one and class two, and in some cases, class three. At that time, were there any diabetics that were trying to make a change um, for those class one, class twos? Yeah. Um, so as I started to research uh, the, I guess, issue, um, there were definitely some folks that had already started that track, so to speak. Um, and, you know, those who aren't exposed to or have not been exposed to uh, government regulations and or laws, um, they they're in, <laughs> inherently maddening um to kind of sort your way through um and the the way the wording was in the um federal regulations uh, in 2015 was that it wasn't wholly prohibited meaning it was you know a complete disqualifying event it was a disqualifying event for what they call a standard issue or a normal first second or third class medical but it said that you know you could uh, apply for, and it would be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis uh, for what's called a special issuance medical. Uh, and depending on which class, you know, all just depended on the application and what you were, the intent of use was going to be. Um, so that, you know, shed a little ray of, of you know, potential or, or you know, um, hope there to that situation. And, um, you know, where I went with that bit of information is then to get in contact with, um, a couple uh, private organizations that advocate for commercial airline pilots with the FAA regarding uh, aeromedical um, conditions. 
because there are many other medical conditions that um, are allowed uh, under a special issuance medical, some of which are, cardio are cardiac, uh, neurologic, um, you know, some of them like um, certain forms of sleep apnea, um, type 2 diabetes, you know, that's controlled with oral medication was allowed at the time. Um, and just a whole, you know, gamut of things that were allowed. Um, and at that point, no uh, insulin-treated diabetic had been approved. Um, but there was, uh, you know, one, um, uh, one pilot in particular who was an American Airlines pilot that um, actually took a legal case um, all the way through to the uh, U.S. District Court um, because he had applied for a medical, a first-class medical, um, and basically had kind of, I don't know, I guess you could call it, was stonewalled to a, to a point where they had neither denied it nor approved it and had kind of kept him, you know, in limbo for multiple years. And at some point, wow. he just was able to get enough uh, legal support to pursue this case and basically bring a lawsuit against the Federal Aviation Administration, which is no small task. Yeah, um, and so that's where that was in 2015. And then I, you know, um, so, you know, him along with, you know, others had already started that kind of push to, to try and make this possible. And another thing that was, um, um, I guess, used as a data point or uh, something to shore up that um, petition to the FAA was that um, in 2015, other countries were already allowing um, insulin-treated diabetics to operate commercially. Um, Scotland, Ireland, um, the UK, um, and um, Canada, and if I recall, uh, there was one other uh, country in the Middle East and then one in South America, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they were allowing it. and the people that were looking at bringing this to the FAA used that their examples in that during the last, I think at that time they had about seven years of uh, flight crews that were operating. They'd never had any of those flight crews have an issue with their diabetic management in flight. And so as a, you know, kind of a proof positive to say, Hey, as long as this is managed correctly, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's safe. Um, and then, so I just, you know, got in touch with, um, you know, that particular pilot, talked with him about the case. The um, uh, district court actually ruled in his favor um, and against, not really against, but basically told the FAA, you need to provide a reason why you're denying or not proceeding with this application. Um, and they gave him a time frame, uh, and that kind of uh, got the ball rolling. And, you know, <laughs> anytime you're dealing with lawsuits or particularly the federal government, things move, but like they say at a glacial pace, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, it's kind of that, that thing where you see it a hundred miles off, uh, you know, and then it's, mm -hmm. you know, still 99 miles away five years later, uh, you know? Yeah. So, um, so, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, there was some movement. And, uh, so I started to get involved with, with that and, uh, through one of these, um, aeromedical um, organizations. I got into contact with a couple uh, uh, aviation medicine physicians and, uh, you know, basically, you know, submitted all of my data, CGM data, you know, all my endocrinology reports, blood work, everything that they could possibly need 
um, so that they had a data set. And then that uh, physician, uh, Dr. Quay Snyder, utilized my data and the data of a couple other pilots in his presentations at some of the national and international um, air and space and aeromed conferences uh, to show, you know, that, you know, of course they, they took my name off of it and the other people's name, but they used that data to show, you know, that properly controlled, here's your standard deviation, here's your coefficient of variation, here's the, the uh, high and lows, and, you know, here's the uh, proof to say that, you know, this person is not only um, not a risk, but potentially is less of a risk than somebody that isn't continuously doing blood work every three months and isn't mm -hmm. controlling with nutrition and doesn't wear a continuous glucose monitor and so on. And, you know, that was also, you know, provided to be, um, you know, data to help move along this process of, you know, trying to get the FAA to, um, you know, see what the technology was, what was available through CGMs, you know, and what it was capable of, and in the right hands of a, you know, motivated diabetic that wants to focus on, you know, stability, you know, that mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be a uh, disqualifying event provided that person is well informed and is using the technology and the medication correctly. So, wow. Do you mind sharing? Because, you know, we can get nitpicky, not nitpicky, but get nitty gritty. Uh, do you mind sharing some of those, what, if you remember, some of those standard deviations or what, like, what the numbers were like, oh, you know, John has, uh, you know, his average glucose is this, he only is in lows this percent of time. Do you remember any of those numbers? And I would, I would figure that they'd probably be more worried about hypoglycemia than hyper, you know, uh, for long-term flying. So what, what's some of the obstacles that the actual data and as they were trying to prove you and others and make headway into like, hey, a healthy, motivated diabetic can do this. What were some of the numbers that they were showing that it's possible or that they were trying to stop saying this isn't, that's not okay, or you need to pass this criteria? Right. Um, so initially during, you know, prior to my involvement and then um, up until November of last year of 2019, there was no published protocol and that's one of the things that we were, you know, myself and others were working towards kind of pressuring the FAA to come up with a published protocol to say, here's what we're looking for. And this mm -hmm. is what we want submitted uh, to have a standardization so that we could then send that in. Um, and uh, I'll come back to your, your first question later, like what were they, were they looking at beforehand? But once they issued the protocols, um, it's now published and they actually revised it in September of this year to have tighter tolerances. Um, prior to that, you know, that, that was the difficult part was that there was no standard, um, that the FAA was looking at, but you're absolutely correct. Their, their main item, their main concern was hypoglycemia, right? Um, because that could potentially, you know, be an incapacitating event and, you know, compromise your cognitive ability, um, you know, in the air. Um, so with that said, um, you know, we use the CGM data to show them and to make sure that the, uh, powers that be in, in, at the FAA in Washington, DC were aware of what the technology was capable of, i.e. CGMs, right? And, you know, 
with the Dexcom and some of the other CGMs, but mainly the Dexcom because of the FDA approval, and especially with the advent of the G6, where it had FDA approval for no finger sticks, um, mm. that was a big component, you know, a couple of years ago to help move the process along. Um, but, um, you know, there, the, our position with the CGMs was that it gives you, you know, alerts that you can change and you can say, I want this to alert me at 90 or 100 or wherever you want us to alert us at. We can set it to do that so that it would basically take a deliberate act not to correct an impending low blood sugar. So it's not just this, you know, pie in the sky, like you're walking down the street and, you know, you start seeing tacos and trees because you have a low blood glucose, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it, you're going to get a warning and it's going to be significant. Um, and it, it, you know, and so that's where our, um, first standpoint was, was to say, this technology is capable of this. What do you want? <laughs> you know, and that's what we had to kind of pry out of it or, you know, petition the FAA to give us. Um, and you know, with that, um, you know, going back to your question, you know, right after diagnosis. So, you know, my first, you know, um, HbA1c when I can't, you know, when they diagnosed me in the hospital, of course was, you know, outrageous. I mean, it was mm -hmm. 13.2, I believe. Wow, um, but you know, you know, with that, you know, once you know, I started to educate myself and started to find out, you know, the, uh, you know, I guess the nature of the disease, you know, my next six month A1C was a 6.1. And then my nine month A1C was a 5.3. And I've never ventured above 5.6 from, you know, then on. I've never gone above 5.6. Um, wow. That's amazing. And, you, with, even without your aviation story, like that, that's a huge <laughs> feat in itself. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, to say that, you know, I, I do, you know, take some degree of pride in that, but it's, it's also, it's completely attainable for anyone. It, it, mm -hmm. It's not, you know, it's, it's not, I by no means think that I'm special in that nature. It's just a matter of taking the knowledge, figuring out how it applies to you, your body and your lifestyle and mm -hmm. applying it. I, I, it. It sounds oversimplified, but I do feel genuinely that it, it really is that simple. And trying mm -hmm. things out, like you guys talked about, even on your, some of your most recent episodes with nutrition, mm -hmm. the same nutrition mm -hmm. isn't going to work for everyone. Right. There's some base principles that, you know, is your starting point. And then you need mm -hmm. to try different things from there uh, to figure out what, what, you know, what works for you. Um, and to go back to your, you know, again, I'm going off on little tangents here, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the basis of that, and when I started to look at what the FAA was going to be looking for, it was just that stability. You know, you had to be able to show that you were stable. And besides having, uh, you know, an infinite other health benefits besides my career relationship, you know, that was, you know, paramount to if this was going to become a possibility. Every physician I talked to would, would just say, we believe this is possible. Not now, but it will be. We're, you know, we're, we're confident about that. We don't know how long it'll take, but you know, we believe this is, is going to be possible, but the key component is going to be, you know, utilizing this technology and being able to show that you're stable. Uh, and so that was kind of one of the things that pushed me to, to, you know, utilize my, you know, prior degree from college and to look, be more, um, I guess, persistent on finding out ways to become 
more stable as a diabetic, and then that then parlay that into uh, the FAA and trying to get our medicals back. Um, and then just to, so I don't go too long on this, the very first um, protocol that finally came out in November of 2019 from the FAA for, it's called ITDM, so an insulin-treated diabetes um, melatist. Um, the first statement was the range that they were looking for. They didn't give A1Cs and they did not um, stipulate in the protocol uh, a standard deviation or a coefficient of variation, but they gave the range uh, was basically uh, 70 to 250, which is a pretty wide range. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, is, is pretty generous, but it was a starting point and that's what we asked for. Um, and then the most recent one that has come out um, they had a board of endocrinologists that they consulted with, and they, um, uh, they they basically moved it to the more current ADA recommendations, which is, you know, was 70 to 180. Um, and then the FA, because they want to give a more of a buffer for low hypoglycemic events, have moved that now to 80 to 180. So there's a 100-point range there that they want you to stay in. Um, and then with this, the standard deviation, um, they want that to be less than 35, and the coefficient of variation, they want that to be less than 40. Um, so, you know, it's it's tight parameters, and so any type ones out there that are hearing that that use CGM or that you know are aware of what those numbers mean, they're not unattainable, um, and but they are tight, and so. I have, you know, seen, you know, there's that 2% of people that are very negative when all this came out and it started to make its way through social media. There is this, you know, I got a flood of people that, you know, the, the negative 2% are like, oh, I'd never get on an airplane with a, you know, diabetic, you know, and they were diabetics themselves. Yeah, like, that's totally unsafe. You know, that that's impossible. Like I'm never getting on a plane with a diabetic pilot and this and that. And I'm just like, well, you know, I'm sorry you think that, you know, I, I really truly am because that in my mind is not, I don't take offense to it. I feel compassion for them because I feel like they've given up on themselves and that's just, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it really, yeah. It really is unfortunate because it just shows their mindset on, like you said, what is possible. And you can tell that if they can't achieve something like that, or those numbers or stability like that, they feel like that's not possible. And therefore anybody who is a type one diabetic that they should not be able to fly an airplane because they're going to be like me if they get low all the time. And so, um, yeah, that's just really unfortunate that a lot of people have that mindset because it just shows you how defeated they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think some of that, and, you know, again, coming in time, contact with folks that have, um, you know, coached a little bit, you know, in the aviation uh, space. And even when I've done JDRF events, you know, it's just, there's a lot of, at, you know, incomplete information or in, antiquated information that people are being given. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately for some folks, when that's their basis, um, it, you know, it's just hard for them to dig out of that hole. And, you know, I, you know, that's why, you know, your uh, message and, and your content that you're putting out and, you know, I think is so important so that, you know, people can get a hold of newer, better, correct information that can have 
extremely positive effects on their health and their life and their diabetic management, you know, and I yeah. think, you know, uh, you know, those, those people that hear this and the folks that I talk with, um, you know, just, just try some of this stuff, you know, like we can talk a little bit if you want about various diets and exercise and things like that, that mm -hmm. I do outside of aviation. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, the way I started it was, Hey, you know, uh, I had breakfast, you know, a couple of weeks after I got out of the hospital and I'm sitting there eating and we were gluten free beforehand because my sister actually has a, you know, diagnosed, um, uh, gluten sensitivities and she has a neurologic, I mean, you guys are in, you know, the functional medicine space. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times like gluten sensitivity can manifest, you know, from a gastro, um, gastroenterologic, um, manifestations like, you know, gut issues, or sometimes they'll have neurologic issues. And she was, you know, had the neurologic side of it where they thought that she had a seizure disorder. And, wow. you know, she luckily recognized because she's a very, very experienced uh, um, pediatric intensive care nurse, the medications they wanted to put her on. And she said, absolutely not. I'm going to go research this more and found mm -hmm. out that she had a gluten sensitivity. So where I was going with that is I was already, you know, we were already gluten free and you know, eating yeah. fairly healthy. But, um, you know, I just started off, I started reading, oh, hey, apparently uh, carbohydrates seem to be a major problem for diabetics. So, you know, um, maybe instead of two gluten-free waffles that are made out of tapioca starch, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe I'll have one and see what that does. And hey, look at that. My blood sugar didn't go up to, you know, 180 and I didn't have to blast myself with much insulin. Yeah, right. that was nice. You know, like maybe I'll continue with that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that was nice. That's funny. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's take a second because I wanna I wanted to go in two ways. I want to finish the, the you know the aviation story, uh, but let's take a second to talk a little bit more about nutrition um, and what you've been doing. So it sounds like you did a lot of self experimentation um, mm -hmm. right off the get go, which was great. Um, and also, I wanted to comment on because some people who might not hear because we don't talk about gluten sensitivities a whole, whole lot yet, or we haven't yet. Um, but one of the first convincing things I saw um, was there is, so your cerebellum is one of the parts of your brain that help coordination, essentially, of movement. And there is documented MRIs of cerebellar atrophy due to gluten, you know, in some yeah. people. And, um, and even in the type one world, because I was about to say, you know, there's two ways an adult can be, uh, type one is that you can already have like this insulin resistant model and end up burning out your beta cells, which that's kind of how they started thinking, okay, adults could be type one, but then there's other, which has this different title, but late onset autoimmune, or um, essentially you're just same uh, pathology of a type one of autoimmune disorder, just later on in life. And that sounds like what you kind of fell down that rabbit hole of that pathway of being diagnosed as a type one of a true autoimmunity beta cell destruction type uh, pathology and so um, those two are very distinct and now I, I want to keep going on rambles but let's let's keep it focused on on what uh what you were doing right away in those experimentations what you do to have that 13 all the way down to six to, to five you know point whatever a1c what how did you start really managing it yeah, so, um, you know, initially, um, when I got out of the hospital um, and then, you know, got home, um, you know, there was, uh, uh, yeah, there, there, there was just, you know, that initial week or two where, you know, you, you kind of feel 
you know, when you get a hold of insulin that you haven't had in a while, you kind of feel the life, you know, kind of come back into, you you know, I mean, everybody probably can relate to that if you were mm-hmm. old enough to remember, um, mm-hmm. you know, your experience. Um, and, you know, with that, you know, you, you then I, I started to look at, you know, nutrition and it's been a progress, you know, over the last five years, I think I've, you know, refined things and tried some stuff and abandoned other things and, um, you know, and, and become more diligent about, you know, the quality of nutrition and, and what my wife and I choose to eat and, and so on. But, on the, the very, you know, first beginnings of that was, you know, just that was before I had a CGM. I got on Dexcom G4 probably six months after my diagnosis. So I was very fortunate uh, yeah, with that. Awesome. Um, but uh, even with, you know, um, uh, finger sticks, you know, I mean, you know, I went and you know, got additional, you know, uh, strips, test strips so I could test more. Uh, I went online and found a couple really good, um, online uh, kind of uh training you know computer-based uh training modules that you know explained a lot about um diabetes type one and athletics there's actually a guy in uh australia that had a really good program put together which i can't i'm not sure if it's still available but he specifically was a uh uh triathlete and coach okay, cool. you know yeah um so uh, you know, he coached, uh, you know, various, uh, type one athletes. And so on those modules, they started to talk about the carb to insulin ratios and trying to figure those out. And, you know, admittedly, so, um, prior to being diagnosed, you know, as a standard, you know, endurance slash, you know, strength athlete where, you know, uh, higher carbohydrates, I don't know how many carbohydrates I ate, but I can tell you one thing when I went for a big mountain bike ride, I was probably crushing through three, 400 carbohydrates in a ride Mm -hmm. on a four hour ride, you know? Um, So I certainly was not low carb by any stretch of the means, (laughs) but uh, I was saying, well, apparently, you know, that is, you know, one of the, um, uh, you know, agitators of the disease. So I said, that seems to be where I need to focus most of my attention on. And so I just started to, you know, experiment like what we were just saying with, you know, um, I used to have, you know, eggs with a couple of gluten-free waffles and a little bit of, you know, sugar-free syrup on there. And I said, well, what happens if I just take the syrup off and I put blueberries on there instead? Oh, look at that. You know, it, it, you know, it made a 20, 40, 60 point difference in your blood glucose. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, hey, what if I just have one waffle instead of two? Um, you know, what happens if I make those waffles out of flaxseed and almond flour instead of uh, tapioca starch, you know, and started to mm-hmm. test some of these things to see how it responded. And I just kind of started honing more and more into you know, if it was more fibrous, if it was more natural sources, the less processed that was, the better response my body had to it, not only from a blood glucose standpoint, but from, you know, how you felt, you know, at that mealtime throughout the rest of the day. Um, and another big component that I noticed very quickly was, you know, how important it is to, for me anyway, to start the day off, you know, as stable as possible. So, don't kick the hornet's nest at 6 a.m. and, you know, spend the rest of the day running, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just, you know, uh, you know, if, if you can avoid a big giant spike in the morning, you know, you're going to mm-hmm. have a much better trajectory for the rest of the day. And I just kind of started to use that as a basis and, you know, honed in more and more on learning more about that and learning more about different nutritional protocols, you know, through podcasts and online. And luckily we live in a, age now where you can 
you can get a ton of information. Some of it is complete garbage, <laughs> but uh, it's information nonetheless, but some of it right. is absolute garbage. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I just started to, you know, find stuff out and try and find credible sources and physicians and folks like yourselves, you know, mm -hmm. that, you know, that, that were, you know, just trying to tell the truth. And, you know, I then would, would research that and then say, yeah, you know, that, that sounds right. And tried it for myself and, you know, just kind of, you know, dug into it from there is kind of the long answer. Wow. I love that analogy. Don't kick the hornet's nest and spend the rest of the day running. That's a, that could be, did you pick that up from somewhere or did you make that up? I grew up in the <laughs> South and I came across a few hornet's nests in my day, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that should be on a shirt. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it just, it applies, man. What can I tell you? It's, it's nothing mm -hmm. you want to tangle with early in the morning. So, so what, uh, so you did a lot of the experimenting and just kind of like walked, uh, you know, step by step into it. And that's a big thing, you know, just taking small steps, small changes and seeing how you respond. And so that's great that you, you know, just kind of, that's the approach you ended up taking. And now it fast forwarded today. So what does it kind of look like in terms of nutritional management of yourself um, as well as exercise? You know, what are you doing to stay the way that you are with your blood sugar and fit and all uh, being ready to fly it? You know, you've, at, how are you approaching it all right now? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you know, you guys may, uh, you know, uh, forgive me if, if you've already said this, you know, via your own um, content, but, you know, I feel like there's a lot of analogies you could use, but, you know, the three really important, you know, tools or pillars or foundation, I think, for health and as it relates to if you have good health, you'll have much better diabetic management if you're a type one. Um, mm -hmm. And without sounding, you know, offensive to those that have been diagnosed with type two, you know, until you're very far down that disease track, I, I do feel like that's a disease you can put into remission. I don't feel like you mm -hmm. can cure it, but you, I do feel you can reverse it and put it into remission through proper nutrition, um, mm -hmm. exercise, right. And, uh, you know, just, um, I guess due diligence is a good way to say it, you know, and consistency, right? So mm -hmm. to answer your question, as far as my nutrition now, where, you know, we found ourselves is that the closer you can get to, you know, what I call real whole foods, you know, uh, the better, you know, how you mm -hmm. choose or what those whole foods are for you. You know, there's a lot of dogmatic, uh, bleep this out if you need to, but pissing contests between... <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, uh, like carnivore crowd and then the plant-based slash vegan crowd. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hearing all these and, you know, listening to a lot of other health and fitness podcasts and so on. Um, and you know, some of the other content on social media and so on, the common thread between those. And I think that people would find for the greater good for people or the uh, population health would be to look at the commonality between those camps which is mm -hmm. most of them will agree upon the fact that the less or the uh, the more you can reduce the amount of processed packaged uh multi-chemical ingredient foods that you consume the better all right mm -hmm. um and so you know i i do practice a fairly low carbohydrate diet but another kind of phrase or coin thing that I like to, you know, describe when I'm talking to people about this is I don't look at it like a low carbohydrate approach. I look at it like a normal carbohydrate approach. 
And mm. my contention to that is that based upon the way that our health as a country and as a world, the trajectory that we're on right now, um, it's an, it, going back to my Southern roots. It ain't good. All right. I think you guys can you know agree with that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you know, as long as you can, you know, really concentrate on, you know, um, those items and where I go back to the normal carbohydrate, I usually stay at most probably, even when I'm very active, you know, doing a lot of mountain biking, a lot of hiking, racing, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's extremely rare that I would ever go over a hundred carbohydrates a day, you know, and that's wow. with, you know, a significant amount of activity throughout the day. Um, other days when I'm doing a long, long shifts at work, you know, I might be as low as 20 or 30, you know, it just depends on what I'm doing for the day. And then, you know, your fitness and activity level, you know, will have an, um, will obviously affect your carbohydrate tolerance. Um, mm -hmm. not only for that day, but for sequential days. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, another thing with going back to the real whole or more natural foods, um, you know, your body can tolerate, you know, a sweet potato, but when you take a sweet potato and you put, you know, 30 grams of brown sugar in it and you put cinnamon <laughs> sugar on top of that and then you put marshmallows <laughs> on top of that, um, it, 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 it's a, that's a rough spot, man. You know, like that's just, um, can you never have that? No. I mean, if you have it a couple times a year, your body, you know, is a, is an amazing, uh, mm -hmm. eloquent, you know, thing. But, uh, you know, you do that two, three, four times a week, five times a week. Um, it, it's not going to turn out well. <laughs> so, um, you know, but yeah, I would say, you know, I do tend to eat, you know, a decent amount of meat for sure. Um, you know, a lot, you know, avocados, um, you know, make like, uh, you know, some like kind of bready type projects, you know, with like almond flour and flaxseed and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but we, we really try and cook at home as much as we possibly can. Um, even before the whole, you know, COVID debacle, um, mm. you know, we didn't eat out very much, um, mainly because we feel like the quality of food that we can make at home is so much better than anything you're going to get at a restaurant. Um, you know, without going on too many tangents, um, one thing that I noticed from an inflammatory standpoint, which is a big, um, offender of health in general, mm -hmm. um, is, you know, by staying away from the processed foods and staying away from eating out at restaurants, you know, we stay away from seed oils, you know, um, because those are really inflammatory fats and, yep. um, you know, uh, there's another guy that has a podcast called, um, uh, uh, well, he has a book out and his name is Vinny Tortorich. Have you ever heard of him? Um, it's called mm -hmm. fitness confidential, but he has yeah. a, a kind of a theory that I keyed into a long time ago, which he kind of really breaks it down very simply. And I, you know, I don't think he'll sue me because I've been on his podcast, but it's called NSNG or no sugars, no grains. Right. And it's as simple as that. And so he's a cancer survivor and he came into that mindset. Um, not only before his cancer diagnosis, but he decided he wanted to try and maintain a fairly high level of nutritional ketosis as a means of cancer prevention after his diagnosis of leukemia that almost killed him and he recovered from. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a simple way that I kind of go about things, you know, like stay away from all the processed sugars, you know, sugar alcohols, 
um, even some naturally occurring sugars, um, and then grains. I, I just don't eat a lot of grains, and by those two components alone, kicks most processed foods out of the out of the equation, and it kicks a lot of carbohydrates out of the equation and puts you into more fibrous, uh, more um, you know nutritionally savvy and nutrient dense carbohydrates when you do have them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where I go with that. You know, and I don't really identify with like, I'm not keto, although I have tested my ketones, especially after long mountain bike rides and yeah, I'm at, you know, two, three, you know, normals. Um, but that's kind of the way your body's supposed to work. Last time I checked is that when you're metabolizing fat, you're supposed to have some ketone body circulating in your bloodstream. It's not a bad thing, but you got to right. agree. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. You know, I've, I need to, cause I'm not Grady or I are not big, like keto heads by any means. Yeah. And cause you can go far down that both oh, yeah. just rabbit hole or literature reading. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of research in that, but I heard, I think it was on the Peter Tia podcast. I might've even brought it up on here before, but, hearing a, a professional cyclist be a ketogenic diet, but still able to keep like 300 carbs a day, but still being ketosis because of how much he's burning and how fat adapted. Like, I don't even know how that actually works, if I admit, honestly. But, uh, but yeah, ketones, when you're burning fat and using fat as fuel and have the right output of energy sources and input, yeah, that's exactly what's supposed to happen, you know. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you, with uh, these long bike rides, how do you, because, you know, let's say like a goo, right? Like if you have goo fuel and like those types of things, obviously very processed, you know, how do you manage such long bike rides or long um, athletic endurance events um, while keeping such low carb? Yeah, so, you know, like a lot of things, um, it, it's just like training, you know, when you're, when you're lifting mm -hmm. or you're uh, coming into a certain level of endurance for an activity or what have you, um, you have to give your body time to adapt, right? Um, you know, if you're, you know, having a higher carbohydrate diet and maybe you're consuming whatever, we'll just say 300 grams of carbohydrates a day. If you decide on Monday morning that you're going to, you know, go, go keto, which I despise that term, but, um, <laughs> Um, it, it, yeah, again, it's not going to turn out well because your body isn't used to doing it. That would be the equivalent of, oh, by the way, I enjoyed your running episode. Uh, it would be the equivalent of deciding to go right from the weight room, uh, you know, doing heavy deadlifts and squats to running a marathon. Could you do mm -hmm. it? Feasibly, yes. But <laughs> you know, your ankles are going to feel like freaking elephants the next day. I mean, it's just, it's. You know, your body's not trained for it. Can it be trained? Absolutely. So where I was going with that is that, um, yeah, over the course of, you know, modifying my nutrition and gradually reducing the carbohydrate content, you know, because of how active my wife and I are, I figured, okay, how do I need to fuel and modify my insulin regime and modify my um, nutritional regime, uh, both off, you know, or off the bike and away from other training uh, and on the bike, because obviously you have to be able to maintain stability and safety, um, you know, especially when you're very remote. I mean, some of the rides that we do, you know, we'll hop on our mountain bikes and if we're doing a big ride, you know, we're 15, 20 miles away from the car and that's nowhere to have a, you know, an unexpected 
uh, you know, uncontrolled low, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're also and, in, literally in the mountains, like you're in Colorado, like you're yeah. the, your yeah, elevation yeah. <laughs> is way higher too. So you throw that factor there too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of the rides that we do where, you know, we're, well, our starting elevation is above 9,000 feet, you know? So, um, and it will go up into the, you know, tens and elevens, twelves, you know? Um, but, um, yeah, so it was just a matter of gradually working into that and getting your body accustomed to that. So you weren't as reliant upon um, as many carbohydrates. And then also the carbohydrates that um, I do eat, uh, I try and mix those you know, to be uh, uh, slower acting. There's a few sports specific products uh, that are you know, utilize um, a resistant starch which, you know, basically breaks down lower in your intestinal tract. Um, and one of which is a product called UCAN. You guys may have heard of that, um, which is a resistant starch that's a corn-derived starch that was originally derived for uh, children that had a metabolic um, disease that makes them incapable of storing glycogen. Um, I can't remember the name of the condition, but they derived this for a medical treatment originally so that it dissolves or rather digests very slowly and gives you a nice, you know, very level release of, uh, um, or rather digestion of those carbohydrates for those children. So it could sustain them for, you know, 12, 24 hours at a time. So they weren't constantly having to eat all the time because mm-hmm. if they didn't, they would, they would pass away. Um, so this product you can, um, you know, will basically give you a nice, you know, gradual kind of release and it doesn't give you the huge spikes. And then of course you can take, you know, modify how many grams of carbohydrates you're putting into the mixture by how much you mix. It's just like protein drink or something. One scoop mm-hmm. is 20 grams, two scoops is 40 grams, that kind of stuff. Um, so I started utilizing that product and then um, uh, I found another product uh, that uses a pea starch, which is another um, resistant starch. Uh, that, that uh, basically doesn't give you a huge spike. It just, you know, will last, you know, multiple hours and kind of give you the equivalent of maybe eating half a glucose tab every 30 minutes, you know, but it's relatively low carbohydrate. So it would like, for example, one scoop of that resistant starch um, is about 20 grams of carbohydrates, um, but it's only 80 calories. And so, you know, I've kind of gotten in my, you know, myself to the point, so is my wife, where we can take basically a scoop, maybe two of that resistant starch, so 40 grams of carbohydrates, and that's enough for me to do a four-hour mountain bike ride, five hours, you know, no problem. And the physiology behind that is once you get to it and you get your body used to accessing and metabolizing fat, uh, fat oxidation as a fuel source, um, it, it, it again kind of goes back to that 80-20 rule, but I know doctors um, uh, Finney and Pollock uh, they have a, uh, a book called The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate uh, Nutrition, and then they have another one specific for athletics. And I went to Ohio State, and they were actually doing some of that research when I was at Ohio State. Um, this was back in the early uh, 2000s. Um, but uh, um, basically what they showed was is once you give the body adequate, and that's the key there, is adequate adaptation time, um, that it's capable of providing about 75 to 80 percent of its energy needs through fat oxidation, and then you have like that last kind of you know 20, 25 percent 
that especially if you're doing like a mixed type of activity like mountain biking where you have spurts of very glycolytic activity combined with mm -hmm. endurance you, you do have to have some glycogen right um, mm -hmm. and a lot of times that's you know in those activities you can't necessarily produce it through the liver at an adequate rate so that's where that little bit of extra carbohydrate comes in to kind of you know give you that bump so you're sustaining your glycogen levels over a prolonged period of time because most folks, you know, our size, and you guys are, look like bigger guys than me, but most people store about, if you want to go to caloric equivalents, about 2,000 calories of glycogen or glucose in their body at any given time in their muscles and liver and, you know, other tissues. And if you deplete that, then that's where the bulk comes in. But if you can kind of take a little nibble out of that 2,000 calories, you know, because you're fat adapted and then use the rest of your energy needs from body fat or you know some exogenous fat um, mm -hmm. i believe that that's a very efficient and natural way for the body to be able to perform especially over um, long periods of time or endurance activities and even you know um, more uh, things like weight training i mean you have more than enough glycogen in your body right now to go you know do a really significant hour and a half long workout provided mm -hmm. you're used to it right Fast mm, workouts, right. you guys have talked about that. I do mm -hmm. fast workouts pretty much every morning because you're so stable. Um, right. I basically can run to the gym for a mile, do weights for an hour, hour, 15 minutes, and run home. And as long as, you know, nothing weird happened, you know, I'm sitting there flatlined, at, you know, between 90 and 120 the whole time. So same kind of idea. Wow. Yeah, you with your exercise uh, science physiology background, I feel like that's giving you a really good advantage to understanding and jumping right into this, you know, self -ex experimentation and learning how to do a lot of this stuff. But at the same time, uh, you, you know, you've done these things and they've been basic, they've been basic changes. And so uh, I almost wanted to say before, you know, if anybody's listening to this and thinking about all the things that you or maybe any other diabetic has done and think, oh, well, they've had, you know, so much training and knowledge in it. Well, I mean, yeah, that's helped. But at the same time, the things that you've done, anybody can do. And it's not like this super complex things. Like you said, you just start making small changes and that adaptation time, all processes take time. And, you know, if you continue to put in the work throughout a long period of time, you can't figure out how to have 40 grams of carbs for a four or five hour bike ride. You know, that, that is possible even without um, extensive science training. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on that note, you know, going back to you know, the nutrition side of things, I'm also a firm believer in um, a lot of this stuff, quite frankly, is, is free. You know, there is no, you know, I mean, yeah, supplements help and, you know, for some things, um, mm -hmm. but there's, you know, you can get, you can have profound positive impact on your health through basically just, you know, focusing on food uh, what you're eating, what you're not eating every day, um, sleep. You guys have talked about sleep. That's massive. Mm -hmm. um, stress, you know, all these things, um, you know, not sitting in front of a TV, you know, 72 inch giant TV, you know, uh, right before you go to bed and getting blue light all over you, which some people think that's a little weird, but you know, it's 100%, you know, Oh yeah. And through brain science, put some yeah. blue light glasses on, you know, if you're going to do that, yeah, all mm -hmm. these things are not, um, you know, 
they're, they're not available to just the 5%, right? I mean, right. some of the stuff you hear about like, oh yeah, you know, get yourself a red light, you know, sauna, which they're awesome, but they're also like five grand. So yeah. I don't have one, you know, um, <laughs> they're cool, but uh, I don't have one. Um, right. But a lot of this stuff really is, you know, it's, it's free. You just go try it, you know, I mean, yeah. it's not going to hurt. Um, and then, you know, like going to the diabetic side of things again, um, you know, since my diagnosis, I've chosen to do to, I've been on MDI the entire time. Um, okay. you know, I'm, I'm not on a pump that I figure that might come up at some point. Um, mm -hmm. and some people say, well, you know, why haven't you tried a pump? And quite frankly, I just haven't had the need. Um, I, awesome. I, I just don't feel like plus, you know, the activities that we choose to do, um, being in remote locations, you know, backpacking, you know, being in the back country, camping, all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't particularly, you know, a CGM is great. It's a massively, you know, it's a very, it's a, you know, it's a great tool and I'm fine with the CGM, but I just also, you know, haven't felt the need for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, the reliability and I just don't really like the idea of having something attached that something like that attached to me. Um, yeah. that's a personal choice. Um, and then going back to like some of the endurance activities that I do, um, I've also talked to some other uh, very high-level uh, type one endurance athletes, and even some that are using a pump will actually utilize uh, Levomir Atlantis um, as their basal insulin, so that when they detach from their pump, they at least have the basal on board, so it yeah. prevents getting the spikes when they're doing long efforts of multi-hours. And mm -hmm. um, you know that's kind of what I do when I'm doing these big bike rides, is that I don't have any rapid acting insulin on board, I basically will yeah. just modify my basal and then, mm -hmm. you know, I don't have issues. So. Right. Yeah. That's a, uh, I think for really long term in terms of athletic events, uh, that's a, a superior strategy to, to the pump in the, in the long term. Uh, personally for me, if I were to, it's been a dream of mine for a little bit now to do an Ironman and get into the triathlon type stuff. And yeah. that, that type of, uh, therapy, I think is, is superior in that, in that context. And, um, so, but I think a lot of, a lot of high athlete, whether you go, you know, in Instagram world or, or just blog space or type in terms of type one diabetes, there are so many people that combine MDI and CGM and that, and they find mastery in that. And it's all personal. It's all personal choice. Yeah. I don't think one, one strategy is better than another. Um, but I think that's really awesome how you've learned how to balance those things, both from a mindset, you know, you're doing something that you want to do. You don't want to have a pump, so you're not using a pump, but you found ways to use shots and not feel weird and do all these other things um, and have really, really good health outcomes with that, which is, I think, you know, one of the biggest goals we're all looking for. Yeah. So. And, you know, on that point, um, you know, this kind of get goes back to the nutrition and the stability. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a firm believer that it would be very, very difficult to attain, you know, the parameters that I aim for on MBI if I was eating higher carbohydrate processed foods. Uh, not mm. to say it can't be done, but I think it would be far more difficult and require a lot more, um, well, I don't want to say attention, but it would be a it would be a much smaller and more rapidly moving target. Let's say that you know yeah. it would just be a lot more. It would take a lot more attention, and 
that's another thing why you know I feel like by focusing on your nutrition and your exercise, you know, you're taking less mental energy to maintain your diabetic control than you would be otherwise. You know? mm -hmm. So I, that's so, just what I found. <laughs> so with uh with that, because you haven't said uh and one of your emails that you end up, or maybe I read it on, on one another blog post that you do nutrition counseling with other type ones or with other pilots even, or, or what, uh, what's that like? Yeah, it's kind of a hobby. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't have a business or I don't, you know, charge, you know, fees or anything like that. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, yeah, I've worked with, uh, through my airline and, um, just some of the, there are some, uh, diabetic, uh, pilot groups out there. Um, I've just, you know, because of, um, some of the things that I've found out and, and my experiences, I just want to share those with others so that, you know, maybe the people who are newly diagnosed or maybe who are type twos and mm -hmm. that have, in my opinion, not been given the whole story to, to put it nicely, um, or their, their CDEs or their endocrinologists just quite frankly, don't have time to give them the, the uh, adequate information, you know, knowing mm -hmm. what we know about the healthcare industry, you know, they're very limited on their time mm -hmm. and how long they can have them in, in a clinical visit. I, I just started to kind of, you know, mention to folks like, Hey, you know, you know, I found out some pretty cool stuff. You know, I've been able to have some really good results. You know, if anyone wants to talk about it, you know, wants, you know, to, you know, wants a little bit of advice, more than happy to help you out. And so I've had a number of uh, type two uh, diabetic pilots reach out to me and, um, you know, just working with them and giving them some, you know, some resources and some, um, some, you know, basic, you know, nutrition um, ideas. Um, you know, three of them that I've worked with have, you know, have basically completely put their type two diabetes into remission and are no longer uh, diabetic. That's awesome. Um, with no medications. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, um, they've now taken that trajectory of, you know, that old school mindset of type 2 diabetes being chronic progressive and basically incurable to saying, oh, actually, it is no longer progressing. Um, it's not chronic. And as long as you sustain your lifestyle and your nutrition protocol, um, you will be bothered with this no longer and it will not affect your career and your health. And, you know, they're, they're sold. And, um, you know, with other type ones, you know, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not dogmatic on the approach or the, you know, the, the camp of nutrition that you want to go into, but I'm definitely a big, uh, I like to prophetize a little bit about the advantages of getting away from the processed foods and, you know, being smart about, what carbohydrates you eat, if you're going to eat them and how many of them, when you're going to eat them, how that pertains to your insulin regimes for the type ones. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so just, you know, working with folks and my goal there wasn't to say, look at me. Um, you know, I know all this stuff. It's just to say, I found some out, I found out some cool stuff. If you'd like to hear about it, I'm more than happy to share it with you. So. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really cool. Uh, and you're doing it purely from a, a perspective, not perspective, a point of, you know, wanting to skip back. Like you've learned these things. So let me help you, which is right. the most authentic, yeah. you know, like that's, that's how it should be. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned a, a few times and it's like the most true thing, which you've already said, but to repeat it, you know, 
the more whole foods, the more natural, less processed is, is the commonality in so many of these diets, right? And it's almost like uh, I, I listened to the Mastering Diabetes and Carnivore MD podcast. I'm not sure if you've listened to that episode uh, oh, back yeah. in April or something <laughs> like that. And yeah. they really get into it, but it's like oh, yeah. whatever. <laughs> and I loved it. Uh, but when they, it's like whenever you have that, those like heads that really bud, like no matter what, like the common white flag is like, all right, everyone stop eating processed foods. Like, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, um, but that is the truest thing, you know, and that will get you, 80 go by 80 20 that will get you to the 80 percent there you know that will be probably one of the best advices you can get and implement if you're not doing it and see such a drastic health change and then the more dialed in you are that's when you can start having those nuanced conversations but like yeah. you know if you're trying to give the best advice to the most people that's the most commonality like that's that's it you know so yeah yeah for sure i totally agree i mean you know with that it's yeah um uh, I've heard the mastering diabetes guys on a few podcasts and it's mm. always entertaining. Um, and you know, I don't know how much it, if you've read any of their book and I'm like, all right, so I'm one of those people. I'm like, well, before I sit here and, you know, derive an opinion, I, mm. I got to read the book, you know? And so, yeah. um, you know, I, I read it and, you know, again, it's, uh, there, there's some good science in there, um, mm -hmm. with some, interjections that I don't quite agree with. Um, you know, I've heard the guy talk about how he's going to go eat dinner and he's going to have, you know, papaya, kale, and like some raisins or something with some bananas for dinner. I'm like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that doesn't sound particularly appealing to me. I'll go ahead and take my sirloin with, you know, some, uh, yeah. you know, some yeah. green beans and, you know, um, you know, whatever on the side, uh, that sounds more appealing to me, but, um, right. You know, it's one of those things where, like you said, you know, the commonality is, it's like, Hey, let's get away from all the processed foods. And, you know, then, yeah, then you can talk about like some of the nuances as far as, um, you know, the particulars and trying to be very specific about what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And then, you know, you get into these whole discussions about the gut microbiome and, you know, mm -hmm. permeability, gut or, um, intestinal permeability and, you know, what affects that and like the autoimmune diseases and all the inflammatory stuff. And, you know, you can go down all these tangents, but, you know, if people get kind of overwhelmed by that, they're just like, oh, there's so much, you know, you get that analysis paralysis, right? Yeah. Um, you just get this overload of information and then you decide to say, well, I'm not going to do anything because this is confusing. You know, mm -hmm. that's why I'm just like, like to hammer that home. Just try and focus on the quality of your food and the nutrient density and then start looking at some of these nuances and that can improve your diabetic management and your, you know, your health. Um, yeah. like folks that I've worked with that are interested in weight loss, right? Um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of the phrase, you know, fix your health and your weight will self-regulate. Like if you're truly yeah. healthy, your body doesn't want to be overweight. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's become that way because, because we've completely hijacked our, uh, metabolic and our, you know, um, hormonal health. And, mm -hmm. uh, if you can re-regulate that, you know, through proper nutrition, um, you know, it'll, it'll take time, but you know, it, it'll come around, you know, it's sort of like, I'm sure you guys, you know, come across folks like that too, where they want to lose whatever, 60 pounds in three months. And you're like, well, it probably took you two or three decades to get to the yeah. point where you're at. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's a fair, um, expectation of yourself 
to mm -hmm. fix that in three months. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I agreed. And, uh, you know, the people I've worked with so far, it's that the very same approach. It's like, it's almost like I try to convince them to be, let's make that a positive side effect. Like my goals for you want to be quality of life in, in other ways. The weight loss is a, not a random, but I don't even want to consider it as a metric in terms yeah. of what we're shooting for. I'd rather just shoot for other things, whether it be blood markers or how you're feeling or your symptoms or, you know, all these other things, um, you know, that's what, and then let that weight shed off uh, or, you know, just be shed grammar, whatever. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I think that's a very realistic approach and hopefully somebody who has had that much weight for that long doesn't have that expectation, but you know, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Um, but okay, so I wanted to, uh, we kind of took a pause for the aviation story. So getting back to it, right? So you've now been working with um, other pilots and other groups and, and as well as physicians trying to create these standards for, mm -hmm. for care, right? And not for care, for standards for um, what is acceptable or not for these class one, two, and, and three license. Um, so as it stands now, how how is it and what is the progression of it you, it seems like this past year has had a lot of momentum so what is it like looking forward and the state of you know as 2020 wraps up yeah so um just to yeah, real quickly just to clarify um in the aviation world so to speak or in the the you know flying world um you kind of have two components um if you will you have your pilot certificates which are sort of like you know your uh, you know, driver's license, basically. It's the pilot certificate itself is a uh, certification of your skills and knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to go and get flight lessons and learn how to fly and, you know, learn the, the knowledge set for, you know, charts and navigation and systems and all that kind of stuff to operate an airplane, right? So mm -hmm. that's your pilot certificate. And then with that pilot certificate, um, you must hold depending on what level you're going to exercise or what um, qualifications you have with your pilot certificate, you then have to have a medical certification that basically uh, is an attempt to make sure that the, those folks that are operating the aircraft are fit to do so because ultimately you're taking a giant piece of metal full of fuel and propelling it through the air and we don't want people to have weird stuff happen and you know crash into people, right? So um, mm -hmm. there's a medical component to that. And so um, for like private, you know, operators, they will generally have what's called a private pilot's license and you can have, you know, uh, an instrument rating on top of that. And that allows you to go out and fly relatively small airplanes for private use, you know, not for hire. And with that, you need to have what's called a third class medical. Um, and even prior to 2015, you could have a special issuance third class medical with insulin treated diabetes provided you submitted the right uh, medical records and, you know, were, uh, you know, unacceptable um, control. Um, once you get above the private pilot certificate, you then have to hold either a second or a third class medical, which allows you to operate for compensation or higher as the, you know, terminology reads. Um, mm -hmm. In my case, uh, when I was operating as a uh, on-demand cargo pilot, um, and then also as an airline pilot, you have to hold the highest of those cert, uh, medical certificates. Um, and also, 
uh, consequently, you have to hold the highest level of um, qualifications from your uh, pilot certificates, which is called an airline transport pilot certificate, which allows you to operate very large aircraft uh, with you know jet engines and that type of thing on them. Um, and with that first class medical until last year, um, it was not prohibited, but it was also had not been, there had never been one issued to an uh, insulin dependent uh, pilot. Um, so the advocacy that you know many others and then I kind of joined into was to pressure the FAA to come up with a protocol based upon factual information from other countries and um, you know clinical standards and clinical research and the advent of the reliability of CGMs to say, let's come up with some protocols to say if these pilots can meet these parameters, um, then they should be able to hold this special issuance medical. And on that note, those first class medical, the special issuance medicals, depending on your age, so if you're under the age of 40, they're only good for a year. And you have to continuously provide new data uh, to show your continued compliance with these um, uh, parameters. And mm -hmm. for myself, I'm over 40. And so I have to uh, submit all this information. And you know, the medical is only good for six months. So you have to, again, show continued compliance with these parameters on a six-month basis. Um, and they're very comprehensive. Um, the current one has a battery that you, of tests that they want to see, blood work, um, statements of treatment of care um, from your endocrinologist or treating endocrinologist. Um, I have to have a cardiac risk evaluation done. I have to have a treadmill stress test done for cardiac damages because, you know, that's, again, associated with poorly controlled diabetes. Um, a, uh, an eye exam by a board-certified um, ophthalmologist. Um, wow. Yeah, and then you have to go to a flight surgeon and have a physical exam done. Um, and let's see what else is on there. You have to turn in uh, your CGM um, uh, data uh, in a monthly format printed out, or rather, you know, from like the uh, Dexcom Clarity, mm -hmm. the EGP reports, um, along with all of your weekly um, graphs uh, mm -hmm. for 12 months prior to your date of application. Um, and then... Uh, the parameters they want your um, flow glucose values to be between now is between uh, 80 and 180. And then any excursions outside of those parameters, particularly on the low side, if it's below 70 for more than 30 minutes, they want that documented and a reason why it was below 70 for more than 30 minutes. And if it goes below 60 for more than 15 minutes, they want that documented and a reason why it went below 60 for more than 15 minutes. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, that's, that's where the current protocol sits. And there's a lot of parameters in there additionally. And then most recently, um, you know, one of the nonprofits that I work with is called Pilots for the Advancement of Medical Standardizations in Aviation, PAMSA, which is very wordy, I know, but we couldn't find anything better. <laughs> They'll Plus, work it out. in aviation, we just love acronyms. So we just were like, yeah, let's go ahead and throw that out there. But um, anyway, um, what we're trying to get like kind of the last piece of that puzzle is that those of us, there's about 25, seven of which have been approved to date for first class medicals. Um, the last piece of that puzzle is what they're looking for from a standard deviation and then a uh, coefficient of variation, which is kind of where, you know, the medical field is kind of transitioning 
because they're looking at with someone who is able to use or is on a CGM, mm-hmm. those time and range uh, variables um, and, and then standard deviation and so on is actually the fi- you know, they're finding is to be a better indicator of diabetic control and health than to say, well, your A1C is 5.5 because as we all know, and you guys have talked about, you, yeah, mm-hmm. you could have, you know, the you know, crazy roller coaster going and still have a relatively decent A1C, but that's not necessarily, you know, as good as mm-hmm. someone that's like at a hundred, um, but their standard deviation is 20, you yeah. know? You're right. So um, anyway, so that's what the uh, AV, or the uh, FAA is finally looking at. Um, and then with time and range, you know, they're looking for that time and range to be in excess of 85%. Um, and, uh, you know, with lows being less than um, percent of time low, uh, less than 10%, and then uh, high, they're not as concerned about. We haven't really been able to pry those numbers out of them yet. And quite frankly, it's so new, I don't think that they've established those yet. Sure. But as those standardization or that standard is being known, we're trying to disseminate that so that other people that are wanting to put applications in have the correct numbers to aim for uh, to hopefully make their approval process as seamless as possible. Wow. At first, uh, and I was going to make the joke like, that's it. That's all I need. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, cause that sounds like a lot, but let's say I'm trying to think about it and take the perspective of non-diabetes out. And so I feel like a lot of those regulations, physical exam, you know, there are a lot of things to get those medical, you know, that medical part of the, that certificate. Um, even without diabetes, like it's so well regulated that if you're pursuing aviation, I feel like that is almost a, a commonality that you already have to accept. Uh, does that kind of sound true? Um, it does. Um, you know, the running joke around my work um, is generally aimed at me, which is you're probably the fittest guy in the building and you're the only one that doesn't have a freaking medical. Um, <laughs> So, um, but, um, to speak to that, you know, they're just like the general population, you know, pilots are no different. There's people who are very healthy and there are people who are, whether they realize it or not, are kind of teetering on the edge of their medical. Um, and, um, there's a a wide range of that. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, you know, that, you know, that's again, another push there is that, you know, um, trying to make that known in the, in the aviation community of why it really is important to maintain your health so that you don't have to go down. And I tell people this all the time. I'm like getting a special issuance medical, even if it's not diabetes for any reason, now you're dealing with the government and you're dealing with turning in a lot of paperwork and jumping through a lot of hoops. And if you can avoid that, do everything you can, because man, once you go down that road, it's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's not, yeah. it's very, very irritating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. And I was, uh, I'm glad you clarified that cause I was going to go to different routes, but you know, as somebody who might be a uh, type one diabetic or in a similar situation as you, and now you're fighting for having all this criteria. So that way it's possible right now, there's an actual door to walk through to make sure you, that you can, you know, uh, return as a pilot. Uh, but if you're seeking that as a goal, that sounds really daunting. Oh, I need to have this percentage, need, need this standard deviation. Like even if you're really number focused, that seems 
like so hard to make that your goals. But at the same time, going back to what you've already said and what we've kind of already said in this podcast is that, you know, keep it simple. When you start focusing on your health, the rest will kind of follow. Same thing with the weight. And if you focus on your health and nutrition, those diabetes numbers will follow as well ultimately too. And so it might be daunting and a huge, it'll be a huge success once those are really solidified for this criteria. But, um, but then if anybody sees those and feel like it's daunting, then take a step back and be like, all right, basics, what do I really need to do to achieve those results? It's like in, in a sport you don't, or you shouldn't participate and go win a tournament for the trophy, you win the tournament for the sake of winning. And then the trophy is the side effects kind of thing, you know? So right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I have another question about just like, is there a difference between the, um, I guess the, um, the bar for the class one, class two, class three? Because I know I'm sure there's diabetics out there that may not be necessarily interested in commercial flying, but may want to do private flying if they have their or want to have their own plane or something like that. Is there less? Uh, or I guess, is that window bigger uh, for class three or is it kind of across the board the same? Uh, yeah, that's actually a really uh, apt or a very good question. Um, yeah, so for private um, pilots, folks that, as you were saying, that uh, maybe just want to fly uh, as a hobby or, you know, basically uh, have, um, you know, their own aircraft or they're in a flying club. There's lots of flying clubs out there. That's how I got started years ago. Um, or ways to rent airplanes and want to start flight, you know, learning how to fly. Uh, the third class medical, um, they've issued. That's a much more streamlined process because it's been around for about um, eight years, I believe now, maybe a little bit more. But it's much more established. Um, it's it's going to be a little bit more. You know, they're going to require um, a basically, it's a. Um, a worksheet that your treating endocrinologist needs to fill out. And as long as you're under 40, um, it's just going to require a little bit of uh, lab work and then an eye exam uh, outside of your normal flight physical. Um, but other than that, um, you know, it, you'll send it into Oklahoma City and they'll review it. It might take, you know, a month or two for them to get through the review process. Um, but uh, for, you know, non-commercial flying, the, the third class medical, um, you know, there's quite a few of those that have been issued. Um, to my knowledge, there's mm, a little over a thousand of those total in this oh, country wow. that have been, that have been issued. Yeah. Um, so oh. yeah, that's, that's definitely, um, you know, and, and I've had a third class medical, you know, for the last four years while I've been, you know, involved in this whole process. Um, so I've been able to fly, you know, um, you know, privately, uh, myself, uh, in smaller aircraft, um, so yeah, that's absolutely attainable. And you know, if people are interested in going out and um, and attaining that, um, there's you know a lot of good resources out there. And you know, if you, you know if there are people that hear this, they're interested in that um, and want more detail on it. Um, you know, if you want to include my email with the, the show notes or something, um, I'd sure. be more than happy to to you know talk with folks about that for sure. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so what is the next steps then you know what what are looking towards 2021 and kind of uh trying to make this process like finalize you know what what's kind of the timeline that that you think is going to happen obviously you know that glacier pace of the government is always is always there but uh, what does it look like moving forward in the future 
Yeah, so um, basically our, our, the very, uh, I guess, pinnacle of the goal uh, of this particular uh, item is to have the process um, understood well enough at the FAA and streamlined to the point that when an applicant submits all the required data that's on the protocol, that it can be looked at, assessed, and either approved or denied and if it's denied, then issued uh, a reason for that denial so that the applicant can make those changes or improvements in a timely fashion. <laughs> um, and why I say that with a timely fashion, myself along with the other uh, applicants, I uh, said seven have been approved to, to date, all of which put their applications in between November and December of 2019. And myself, along with about 22 other people, are still waiting our application final approval. So I've been waiting over, or coming up on a year now, yeah, wow. of, of to have all my stuff looked at and approved. And um, so, you know, in the short-term goal is, you know, myself along with the other people is to have those applications uh, approved and then, um, and then use the, the kind of this first group of guinea pigs, if you want to think of us that way. Um, to make or to, to uh, I guess, look at us because I'm sure they're using us as a data point too because they're, they're going to keep clo close tabs on us because they want to make sure that, you know, this wasn't, you know, Pandora's box they just opened up. And, but it goes back to like all those parameters I talked about. Like you, you have to stay on top of this or you're, you're going to, you, they can rescind that medical. It's not you get it and you're done. It's constant maintenance, just like you know, diabetes. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, um, but our, our, our goal is just to have the process such that if people want, you know, are willing to put in the time, effort, and dedication it takes to not only learn the skills and the knowledge of flying airplanes, but also the skills and knowledge required to maintain their health or their diabetes to the level required for that special issuance, that they can make that application. It can be looked at and approved in, you know, maybe like the two to three months time frame. Um, maybe even less, but um, not have it be, you know, the, the very arduous process that we're currently undergoing right now, where it's really only going through four or five people in Washington, D.C. Um, that have the authority to approve these medicals right now. Um, and so that's where we want to move forward into hopefully in early 2021 is getting these approved and then um those people most of which i'm in personal contact with just being rock solid on their control so that we can say look this was not a mistake this is safe and we need to continue with this so that this doesn't go away but, so that, that's kind of the, the main goal <laughs> wow wow and what a historic you know historic changes that you guys are fighting for uh you know and, and some might say well it's such a small group of people but at the same time for those group of people it literally mean, could mean the world you know yeah. um yeah. so that's that's purely that's really amazing uh and hopefully you know it is by 2021 you know hopefully uh you know the 22 of you get uh get approved soon and then um the, it sounds like the people in the other countries that you used as examples, it sounds like there hasn't been any negative, um, you know, incidences with hypoglycemia or anything like that or control or anything like that, right? Uh, correct, yeah. Um, all, and actually, Australia was 
the most recent country just prior to the U.S. approving this protocol, a good friend of mine, Dr. Uh, Jeremy Robertson, um, he was a Qantas Airlines pilot in uh, Australia and became or was diagnosed as type 1 when he was in his mid-30s. And at the time, it was just like in the U.S. It wasn't, you know, an option for him to return back to flying. So he went back to medical school and became a physician and is a flight physician and an emergency uh, doctor now. Um, and he was you know, did a tremendous amount of work in Australia to get their insulin-treated diabetes protocol approved. And he now has his equivalent of a first-class medical and has paved the way for others. Um, so, you know, the reason why I brought that up is that um, he's been doing some very interesting research and keeping track of these uh, numbers. And to date, there has been no adverse um, safety-related incidents, or rather safety-related incidents pertaining to insulin-treated diabetic uh, pilots in the flight deck. Um, you know, there's been, but on the contrary to that, there's been multiple instances of cardiac events in commercial airlines. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where from the public standpoint, you know, a, a, you know with any of these protocols, CGM is required. And, you know, with that technology in place, we all know that CGMs aren't bulletproof. I mean, they have, but that's part of the user. Mm -hmm. You have to know how to use the equipment properly, right? Mm -hmm. um, but where I was going with this is that um, Dr. Uh, uh, Robertson has done a tremendous amount of work in this. And, you know, the, the numbers are there and saying that this is safe. Um, and he's also done some really interesting work with, CGM and the relationship between where you have your high and your low value set and how that then relates to improved health outcomes of diabetics. So basically mm -hmm. the tighter you have those ranges and the less you use a CGM for a don't die alarm, the mm -hmm. better your health, uh, you know, long-term health is going to be, you know, sure. and yeah, he's done some really interesting work with that to help, you know, add uh, validity to this entire program. Wow. Cool. Now is it, Obviously, Dexcom uh, is so uh, easy to use, and you know now Medtronic has their seven. I think seven seventy G um, has an you know uh, app version of it. But uh, is a lot of this research requiring Dexcom, and that's and obviously you know no one's really sponsored by any of these you know companies, but uh, just because it's the lingo, uh, is Dexcom like exclusively what needs to be used to monitor it, or do these? regulations are they accepting uh you know Medtronic or Libre data as well or because it's so new and so strict they're saying this it needs to be Dexcom we need to be consistent with how we're looking at this data uh so to answer that question on the official protocol from the FAA it does not um stipulate a brand it okay. gives requirements of the equipment um, of which Dexcom just happens to meet all of those requirements, as does the Megtronic system. Okay. Um, and I believe the Freestyle Libre 3, that I guess is only approved in Europe at this time, which is going to be a true CGM where it sends alerts and trends, where okay. the Freestyle 2 does not, you know, you have to scan yeah, it. Just, and that's mm -hmm. why it's not a true continuous glucose monitor, because it won't mm -hmm. alert you to rising and falling unless you scan it. Right. Um, so to my knowledge, the only two FDA, and it has to be FDA approved, so that again narrows the field. So the only two systems that I know of right now that are via FAA accepts is the Medtronic and the Dexcom system. 
Um, there was the uh, ever since, but that's been, you know, I think in the last six to eight months, that's been, um, uh, I guess, rescinded from the U.S. market because um, they were having some issues with it. Um, but uh, yeah, so basically the Medtronic and, and the uh, Dexcom CGMs are the two that they're willing to accept, accept data from because they gotcha. need the parameters stipulated in the protocol. So. Right. Right. Okay. I was just curious, you know, as I was, I know I would probably think about that if I didn't ask that to you, to you right now. So I was curious. Um, and on that note, since we're at just to you know, further add just a little bit, um, and this, you know, for anyone that's maybe wanting to go down this rabbit hole, they don't stipulate a particular brand of pump you can use. You can be, you know, you can, you know, use a pump, of course. So they don't stipulate mm -hmm. a different, a uh, specific kind of pump. Um, mm. in there. It does give some uh, uh, some parameters that the pump needs to meet, but to my knowledge, all the ones that are available in the U.S. meet those parameters. Um, and it, they also do not stipulate MDI injections. Those are all fine. They also don't have um, the only type of insulin that I've been able to find uh, in their um, uh, guide for aviation medical examiners that they and we actually just had a member of PAMSA denied their medical application because uh, they had used uh, a Frezza, which is an, an inhalable insulin, uh, which right. some people may or may not know of. And the reason why they denied that medical is because they had not um, uh, uh, used it in many months, but it was still on their medical file to say that they had at one time been prescribed a Frezza. And their concern there is that um, particularly from a commercial um, aviation standpoint, you know, we have to utilize oxygen masks in emergencies and that a Frezza inhalable insulin doesn't have enough testing behind it to show that it doesn't cause any adverse um, uh, damage to the alveoli or the small portions of the lung. And so that, that that's the one insulin that they currently do not approve is the inhalable insulin, but all the other ones are totally fine. So. Uh, that's that's really interesting. That brings up you know a couple of different ethical questions. I, I I believe I thought it was going to go the other way, saying they only allow certain certain brands, which I thought that was going to be wild if you said that. But I'm glad that it's that is the only one, and that makes sense. Now, is it you know is it is it more so you think that it's just pure? There's not enough testing with it, or do you think it's more ended up? Like what, what kind, or this is where I want to go with this. How does, if the whole fight is to be able to be free and be able to live your life as a diabetic, and that has been shown to have an interesting way of management, you know, that seems like such a weird way to go about it and say, you can't, you can do everything but that, you mm -hmm. know, that, that seems like, is, are there people fighting to make that included or is that kind of just, not even, you know, in your in the words earlier from the podcast, a stone wall because there's just not enough data on that. Um, and I'm sure some people would be upset about that because I know a lot of a lot of people love a Frezza, you know, as a method um, mm -hmm. of to quickly combat really fast highs, you know. And yeah. I've never used it, but I've read a lot about it, and it's very interesting. So um, ethically, it seems interesting to to limit a, a type one's method of insulin usage, even though it's just one, you know, for, for that reason. Yeah. Um, my interactions with the FAA, um, 
would indicate that the reason why they've singled out that particular insulin is simply because of the delivery method, meaning mm -hmm. that it's an inhalable, it has to go through the lungs, and lungs have to are pertaining to your ability to absorb oxygen, of course, and how that might then affect your ability to um, utilize the emergency equipment on an aircraft. Because once you get above a certain altitude, you have to use uh, pressurized oxygen masks um, to provide enough uh, oxygen pressure uh, for emergency situations at very high altitudes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just based upon the fact they don't have enough data, nor was that medication ever really studied uh, for, you know, high altitude environments and all that type yeah. of stuff in prolonged use because it, you know, it might be one of those things where if that's your preferred insulin delivery for, you know, bolusing, um, you know, that, that medication hasn't really been around long enough for them to say, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, if you've been using it for 15 years, are your lungs still as viable as they were before? Right. You know? Um, whereas like injectable insulins, whether the delivery method is a syringe pump or pen, um, that's, you know, well proven to say, as long as you're not injecting in the same, you know, four inch area and have a giant amount of lipo, um, what was it? Lipo, hypo, I can never say that. <laughs> lipo hypertrophy. Is that right? Yeah. Hi, yeah. Hypertrophy. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. I, there's just certain words. It's sorry. Um, <laughs> but, um, as long as that's not going on, you know, they're reasonably sure that, you know, the delivery method is pretty tried right. and true. Um, mm. and I, it is just, I think it's just the interface of the lungs. They, they don't like to jack around with the lungs is quite gotcha. honestly is, is where that is, I believe, but that's conjecture so, on my part. So is, uh, you know, kind of middle length acting insulin, is that still approved in those types of brands you know, that that's still a, a method that I say that's okay for as long as you meet the other criteria. Uh, yeah, you mean things like uh, like Novo and R and that like mm -hmm. regular insulins and those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah any of, any of the FDA approved insulins um, okay. are uh, are fine. Yeah, I, I use uh, Levamir, Novo and R, and I use diluted uh, Hemolog uh, for my um, insulins. Okay, gotcha. Well, I guess that would be more of a, a reason to be upset if they started limiting other forms. Like it either had to be you know, long acting or short acting, you know, in certain brands, but uh, with it only being, you know, an inhalable form, I mean, that that, that makes sense, but I, I can see where some people could be maybe upset, but at the same time, this is so new uh, for this push, <laughs> you know, yeah. you gotta, you gotta, you gotta take a, take an inch to eventually, you know, give a mile kind of thing, you know, at the same time. So. Yeah. And, you know, that's not to say that they won't, approve it right. at some later point, you know, after they have time. But that's another thing that has added complexity um, and, uh, you know, length to this whole process is the fact mm -hmm. that, um, you know, the, the process of a federal or a government entity, particularly the FAA, is staffing. Like they only have X amount of people to deal mm -hmm. with this. And then yeah. another wrinkle, of course, is, you know, the whole COVID situation added you know, more load on the system, yeah. so to speak. Um, and, you know, they, so, so getting things pushed through or even new FDA approved drugs outside of diabetes, you know, is a process to get the FDA to look at it, review it, uh, either approve or deny it. You know, it's, it's a long process. And so, you know, with that, if, if 
you know, I'm sure there are people that use a Frezza and, you know, they'd be super pissed about it, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess if you're wanting to go down or if you're currently using it and you're looking at getting, you know, into commercial aviation, uh, maybe look for some other options, you know, mm -hmm. um, like Fiasp or one of the ultra rapid injectables, um, you know, just, but, you know, it might change. You know, I, I don't know. So. Right. Right. Wow. Uh, well, this has been uh, really enlightening and a really cool subject that, you know, I've enjoyed, you know, this past 90 minutes or so. Um, let's kind of wrap it up though, John. And, yeah. and, I, and I wanted to, just three kind of things. Number one, number one is um, one of our favorite bits is uh, burst my beta cells, um, you know, and just being, uh, you know, the grind my gears type of, and it can be specifically diabetic related, something that can be like with your personal management or something that just in general or something not even diabetes related. So what's something that recently has been bursting your beta cells? All right. Yeah. Uh, I can take a stab at that one. Um, so basically resignation um, really kind of gets me a little fired up. And what I mean by that is that can be applied to many facets of, you know, life and uh, objectives and just living in general, but um, applying it to the diabetic, uh, I guess, subject is resignation to just say, my most one of my most despised phrases is well that's just diabetes you know mm -hmm. and as a explanation to something weird that happened yeah um and so that doesn't sound judgmental because that's not my intent um mm -hmm. is with that if something weird happens or you have a you know uh, out of range blood sugar or you know you're struggling with a medication or you, know, you eat something and it just doesn't go well <laughs> um you know it, it doesn't make you a bad person you know just because you had you know a day or a week or even a month of you know uh, less than ideal uh management doesn't you know um detract from you as a person but what i think you know what i would prefer people take or rather and i strive to try and do this myself and sometimes i achieve it and other times not, but use that as a catalyst to say, what, why did this happen? And can I improve upon it? Um, rather than just throwing up your hands and saying, well, nah, I'm just high today. I, you know, that's just diabetes. I'm like, well, mm -hmm. maybe not. Maybe look at what you did the day before or two days before, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, how well you've been sleeping the last few nights or, you know, whatever it was, because more often than not, there's probably a reason, you know, you just need to go and find it and then say, can I improve upon it? Or was it something that I had absolutely no control over? And, and in that case, whether it's you or your child or a friend, give yourself or them some grace and say, you had no control over the fact that, you know, a tree fell on your car and it stressed you out for a week and your blood sugars went to hell. But mm -hmm. that's why it happened. Move on and then, you know, go from there. So, anyway. Wow. I love it. I love it. Yeah. That's uh, it's kind of similar to what mine's been thinking about a lot this month being, uh, you know, national diabetes awareness month. Um, and I'm sure we've talked about it on this podcast before, but I'll repeat myself because you know, whatever. Um, Your show. But yeah, exactly. That's uh, <laughs> your, your both but, show. <laughs> you're right. Right. But in, in a similar manner, like a proud owner of a, a broken pancreas, you know, like in a similar way, it's like, it's that's 
it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to view yourself as broken and as something that doesn't work, um, you know, because there are parts of your pancreas phys physiologically that are still working, you know, and, and that's fine. But just the mindset of, you know, this is what's happened to me. Oh, well, you know, and obviously it's a joke and, you know, this and that. And I, I don't want to sound judgmental either. And I, I don't think I think you presented um, the re resignation part in a non-judgmental way, because I agree with you 100 percent. Like, uh, you know, it's something happens that's unfortunate, but then it's your responsibility to figure out why, you know, and it doesn't mean when that doesn't happen, if you don't figure out why, that's okay. But as long as, you know, there's always another opportunity to do so. And in a similar way, you know, running that phrase, just every time I see it, I'm just like, I'm just not going to think about it that much because that kind of frustrates me too much, yeah. you know? Yeah. So uh, I, I agree with you 100% though on, on your perspective of, um, you know, accepting and, and accepting shortcomings of a situation and just saying that's how it is. So um, what about you, Grady? What's something that's recently been running your or bursting your beta cells? Um, I've been having a little bit more interactions with other type one diabetics or people who know type one diabetics personally. And I think we've, we've talked about this before, but just the, the mindset of, and we even talked about this in this podcast, but just the mindset of like, only worrying about how much insulin you need to take for a food, not necessarily thinking about how the food is then impacting how hard it is to control your blood sugar. And to me, it's just such a backwards way of, of looking at diabetes and it starts in the hospital because that's what they tell you in the hospital is you, it doesn't matter what you eat as long as you take enough insulin for the carbs that's in the meal, you're going to be fine. And um, that's just been something that's always just so annoying and burst my beta cells is because I've seen the other, I've seen both sides. I've been a diabetic that ate whatever he wanted and mm -hmm. ate just like complete crap. And I was able to control my blood sugars technically, like my A1C looked totally fine. Everybody, the, my endocrinologist was happy and everything. Um, but when I went to shifting my health, it was a huge difference. My diabetes was so much easier to control and my life was just so much better. And so, um, now that I've seen the other side of things, uh, when I hear people talking about that mindset or, uh, not necessarily talking about that directly, but just having that mindset, um, man, it just makes me want to shake them, wake them up. <laughs> uh yeah i'd agree with that too and then um that's kind of like a, a downer but uh it's kind of fun <laughs> but uh what uh john what's something that too and i guess i sprung this on you i didn't put this in the outline but uh what is um something recently that's made you felt uh free of diabetes or something a situation what's like not that it was an afterthought but something that was like yeah that was that was really cool and that was you know i got to live my life the way i wanted it to yeah, like a diabetic win. There we go, uh, diabetic win. That's what we tried to start calling that segment, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So just basically something where you didn't feel like, uh, or I, I didn't feel like um, it, it just kind of freed you from having to think about diabetes, basically, or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, well, geez, to, it's going to sound, uh, you know, like I'm exaggerating, but I've, in the last month, you know, I've had, I've had quite a few, you know, um, 
just even two days ago, uh, my wife and I, uh, you know, went, went on a nice hike. You know, we had a nice 50 degree day here in Colorado. We went up to Rocky Mountain National Park, drove up there, you know, went on a nice, you know, six mile hike. Um, you know, went up there, went to a nice overlook, you know, beautiful, you know, sunny day, 50 degrees in the mountains and went up to 11,000 feet and, you know, hung out on the top for a little bit and came back down and, you know, um, yeah, I mean, except for basal insulin, I didn't, you know, I didn't have to take any insulin. I didn't have to, you know, do a bolus, didn't have to worry about my basal, you know, I was, you know, right in range the whole time. And, you know, except for looking down at my watch a couple of times, you know, that, that was it. Just had to, all I had to do worry about is hike. So it was, uh, it was nice. Um, and then, you know, even just, uh, you know, another month beyond that, you know, we went out on a nice five day mountain biking trip and took our little trailer out and, you know, when I'm out, you know, biking and camping and sitting out by the campfire and, you know, just enjoying the time outdoors, you know, you don't, you know, you know, life is normal, right? So, um, you know, that those are times when I feel, you know, you know, true, truly normal and, you know, I don't have to, uh, I don't have to worry about it. So it's, yeah, it's nice. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Without uh, a care of the world, being able to do all that, that activity um, and just drive. And, and hike and be outside in nature. That's wonderful. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Greg? Um, so recently I've been changing up or trying out some different types of port sites for my insulin pump. And um, so there's this one, so I use a Medtronic and there's a couple different types of sets. Um, I use the standard one or I have been using the standard one. So I've been trying out the one that actually keeps a steel needle inside oh, you at yeah. all times yep and so i the nice thing about it is i don't have to worry about like kinked uh ports or kink tubing and so i don't really have to you know question okay is it a bad port side or um or whatnot so that's been that's been really nice because i didn't really realize how much i thought about that until i ran out of them i put one in for the first time i think this weekend and immediately i had a bad port and i'm like oh crap <laughs> so well, so that's been nice how do you uh does it feel different having a metal one in no so i actually got one that's like the very smallest needle mm -hmm. i think it's like six millimeters is the smallest one that they make um, and so you really don't feel it at all unless you put it on something that doesn't have a lot of cushion so like I tried it in one spot that was right on the side of my glute, but it was really close to my, um, the head of my femur. And so sometimes if I laid right on it, um, I would kind of feel it really not oh, initially, sure. but like the longer it was in, um, the easier it would get irritated. But other than mm -hmm. that, as long as it was in somewhat cushiony area, it wasn't too bad. Wow. Nice. Nice. And then, um, kind of cl closing out then, uh, John, what is, whether it's a type one who's, uh, you know, later in life, you, you know, somewhere in their adult life or somebody in aviation or so a type one trying to go into aviation or just a type one in general, you know, what is, what is something that you want to, to leave, leave them with, you know? Yeah. Um, I think most importantly is just, uh, um, you know, motivate and or uh kind of 
be inspired to educate yourself and uh, um, you know and while you're doing that uh, don't become overwhelmed by the amount of information that's out there and just like we talked about before you know take things or make goals that are you know challenging but attainable right um, mm -hmm. and you know a phrase I use all the time with my uh, you know professional airline students when they're learning a new uh, one of our new airplanes or a new fleet type is to say you know don't let perfection you know get in the way of progression right mm -hmm. and so sometimes people become some over so overwhelmed with having to do everything perfect or having to do it right the very first time they try it um when that doesn't occur which it generally doesn't um then that kind of allows them to you know become uh you know not not paralyzed but apprehensive of trying to improve so you know i guess that's mm -hmm. the the takeaway phrase is just that you know don't let you know that perfection stand in the way of progression and uh you know try and move forward wow love it absolutely love it well john's been a, a complete pleasure uh to have you on the podcast and to meet you and and, and talk to you about a variety of different things and uh we appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and sharing uh the battles you've had and, and the progress that you've made in um very uh important uh field in the federal government in the united states and hopefully um you know just continues to have domino effects throughout the world so thank you great yeah i really appreciate the time um and you guys can edit this out at the end but if you need to but would you mind if I just mention one nonprofit um, oh, yeah. website that can help? You guys probably have heard of it, um, mm -hmm. and I've gone on and checked it out, and it's a really impressive uh, thing that they're doing. It's called uh, getinsulin.org. Have you heard okay. of it? Yeah, I have. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you know, it, it's funded by you know all the major insulin companies and so on, but mm -hmm. um, it's a really great website um, that people can go on to, and you just basically put in you know, whether or not you have insurance, what insulins you're taking, what your regime is. And it mm -hmm. basically will give you a really clear, concise breakdown of all the insulin uh, assistance programs that would apply that you can use, um, both from the manufacturers and some of the private entities. Um, and it just gives you like this, it'll, it'll email it to you where you can print it out. And then, you know, like for example, I got the My $99 insulin card off of there. But it's just, it's a really good resource for folks that maybe don't have insurance or even if you do have insurance. Um, I don't know. I've been, I've been really impressed with that product and it, it, it costs nothing. You, you don't have to put in any personal information. It's not a pay site. It just, it's being paid for by the sponsors, um, which are insulin companies, but it does direct you to some good programs. So, um, I don't know. I just wanted to, you know, mm -hmm. you guys probably mm -hmm. talked about it already, but I thought it was a really cool, um, uh, thing to offer to people that they're doing. What's the repeat the name one more time for people? Yes, it's uh, getinsulin.org. Getinsulin.org. Yeah, I was I was just about to ask you uh, and kind of reaffirm if people had questions about aviation, you know, we'll put your email on there um, and on other organizations that you're associated with that they might want to reach out or help with. Because um, I was thinking about um, other type one diabetics and, and trying to get involved in this, if, if that's what they so chose. So what, uh, if other, you know, future pilots that, that are listening to here also want to help out with that, how could they 
uh, what, who would they contact? Or what kind of organizations would they look into? Yeah, um, so there's a, yeah, a few um, aspects. As far as just general um, information on, on aviation and how to get started, if you're uh, maybe wanting to you know, start flying or just you know, really just in the beginnings of it um, from purely aviation, not diabetic or related, uh, AOPA, so that's Airline um, Owners and Pilots Association. It's a national organization. Um, they do a lot of uh, community information, outreach, education. They have a lot of uh, kids programs. Um, you know, they have a huge website with a lot of resources. Um, so that's a really great organization. Um, as far as diabetic specific, um, there's a number of uh, uh, Facebook groups. Uh, the two that I'm most active on is that uh, PAMSA, so that's P-A-M-S-A, -A, uh, PAMSA um, organization. And, um, you know, if you're interested in that, just, you know, go on to Facebook and type that in and um, you can request. Um, right now we have about 60 members because most of the people on there are um, uh, commercial pilots. Um, but we're always looking for new members um, and we can give you more information on, um, you know, first and second class medical uh, certification. Um, and then uh, also there's uh, insulin treated um, diabetic pilots uh, for first and second class medicals. It's kind of wordy, but um, that's another Facebook group that has a bunch of folks on there. Um, but, you know, in the show notes, if you want to uh, include my email, and, um, and people, if they just want to reach out to me, um, I'd be more than happy to answer their questions. Um, on Facebook, it's just my name. So John Roth, you know, I don't hide behind a fake name or anything. Um, <laughs> and then uh, uh, on Instagram, um, um, T1 Flyer. So just uh, lowercase T and number one, and then Flyer. And um, you know, I post on there from time to time, but you, know, you can always just DM me or whatever. So yeah. Sure. Perfect. Well, um, you know, to anyone who's listening and, and to future pilots out there, uh, you know, we'll link those resources and uh, John, it's been a blessing and amazing. And I hope, um, you know, the intention of this was to really uh, let people know that they can, they can do these things. And um, I think you are an amazing example of that. So um, thanks for being on and everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Diabetes podcast and we'll check you out on the next one. See you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on the Die Buddies podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.